Today we're in Acts chapter 4, uh, looking at verses 1 to 12. We're not going to read all 12 of these verses, so let me give you just a little bit of background before we read some of these verses from this passage. Peter and John have gone to the temple. This is after the resurrection of Christ. This is after the birth of the church. The gospel is beginning to go forward. People's lives are being changed dramatically by the gospel. Peter and John are going to the temple, and as they come to the gate of the temple, they see a man who's laying there uh, who has been lame from his mother's womb. In other words, he's never been able to walk. He's never had that ability to be able to get up and run like all the other kids were able to get up and run and walk. And people brought him to the gate of the temple so that he could beg for alms. They had been doing this day after day for month after month and probably year after year. It was the only means that he had of being able to have a living, to be able to have the sustenance of life was to ask people to be generous with him so that he could purchase the items that he would need to sustain his life or have someone to purchase them for him to sustain his life. As Peter and John approach that gate where this man is laying, he's crying out for alms. Give me alms. Give me alms. And Peter and John stop. They know that God's about to do something dramatic, something that's miraculous. And they tell him that we don't have any silver or gold to give you, but what we do have, we want to give you today. And Peter reaches out with his hand and he says, I want you to stand up. And as he reached out with his hand and took the man and began to pull him up, this man's legs became whole. His legs and his ankles and his feet instantaneously, miraculously were suddenly whole. And you can imagine the thrill and the excitement that was, uh, was occurring in this man's heart, something he's never done in the course of any of his life, been able to walk or to run or to jump or to leap, none of those things. And he's praising God. He's filled with excitement. And so Peter and John continue into the temple, and this man goes right with them into the temple. Inside, they're listening to this man praise the Lord. They're seeing him as he's jumping up and down. They're, uh, they're seeing the excitement that this man has that he's able to walk. And people are noticing, this is the man that lays out in front of the temple. He's been out there week after week, month after month, year after year. He's been out there over and over. We've passed him. Some of them have probably given to him on occasion uh, some alms as they would go by him. And as you can imagine, a crowd begins to gather. They want to see what's going on. They want to see this man that they've seen outside, unable to walk inside, able to do something he's never done before. And you know, anytime there's a crowd that gathers, it's an opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed. And so Peter begins to proclaim the gospel uh, to these who are listening in the temple. And there are many who come to faith in the Lord Jesus, but the people who were the religious leaders of the day who oversaw the temple affairs weren't at all happy about what Peter and John had done, and they weren't all ha happy at all happy about what was going on in the temple that day. And so they come out, they take Peter and John under arrest, and because it's in the evening, they hold them overnight under arrest. The next morning, they bring them out, and they place them in a room where they can uh, inquire of them, you know, by whose authority have you done, that, uh, done this? It's as if to say, who do you think you are, Peter and John? Who do you think you are that you'd come to the temple that we oversee and we regulate and you would do these kind of things without talking to us? Who do you think you are? And 
Peter and John are standing before this august body. It's intended to be an intimidating body. It's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the religious ruling body. They're made up of 71 members, 70 actually, plus the high priest, making 71 members. There are elders that are a part of this meeting. There are family members of the high priest that are a part of this meeting. So, so there's maybe close to 100 people that are in this room in, intending to intimidate uh, Peter and John about what they've just done, what they've seen the night before, the day before, when the healing took place, they're, they're intending to be intimidating toward them. But Peter and John aren't intimidated. Not because they were bold in and of themselves. Peter and John are not intimidated because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We pick the story up in Acts chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... And the word you is emphasized in the Greek text. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. There's the gospel. Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead by him. That is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This man stands here before you whole. This is the stone. That is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then Peter gives a verse of scripture that I hope you never forget. I hope that it becomes so riveted in your mind that you never forget it. It's a coordinate with other passages that say similar, the similar thing, but it is such a powerful verse. Peter says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, I'm going to be sharing a message that can change people's lives. I pray, oh God, that you'll not let anything disturb us, not let anything distract us as we hear the truth of this verse, Acts 4.12. I pray that somebody's life will be saved today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Some of you aren't old enough to remember this, but you may have read about it. If you're closer to my age bracket, you will remember this well. In 1978, there was about a 1,000 people who followed a religious leader by the name of Jim Jones. He had moved his church from Indiana, and he had taken them out to Southern California, but he still was not happy about the way he was being treated and the way people looked at him. He was a very charismatic personality. Uh, he was able to convince people, I don't know if it was by mind control or not, but in some fashion to convince people to be able to follow him. He told them that he was the Messiah, that he was the means of going from this life into the next life called heaven. And they followed him, almost blindly followed him. For three or four years, he had been working on a compound 
out in South America, in Guyana, South America. It was called Jonestown. And at one point, he comes to the place that he realizes that America isn't the place for his followers to be any longer. He loved socialism. Socialism was not in America. He wanted to go somewhere where he thought he could practice his socialistic socialistic path and his religious path. So he moves about a thousand of them to Jonestown, Guyana, South America. And they're out there in the jungle. They begin to have questions about them. Family members who have loved ones that are in Jonestown. You know, what's happened to my loved one? They won't communicate with me. We don't know what's going on out there. It's very strange what's happening. And so uh, Southern California Republic, uh, Democrat uh, representative went to visit them to find out what was happening. Flew in on a plane to find out what was happening. He recognized that there were problems, and after being there for a short time, several of them wanted to leave with him, and as he was leaving, if you remember the story, uh, there were those who rode up not far from the plane. They killed the congressman. They killed three photographers. They killed another man. Jim Jones knew that uh, the plot that he had, uh, he had hatched, this whole plan that he had put together was about to come unwound. And so something else he had been planning with this 1,000 or so people was a mass suicide. It is the largest mass death until until 9-11. It was the largest mass death of Americans because more than 900 of them took their lives that day. He mixed cyanide in Kool-Aid. And then he asked them to drink it. He took cyanide with Kool-Aid and put it into a a syringe-like a device for the children and injected it into their mouths so that they had to swallow it. And then those who were adults obviously took it themselves and they drank it. And more than 900 people, not all of them willingly, but more than 900 people that day died in a matter of a few minutes from the cyanide. A third of those were under 18 years of age. A third of those were under 18 years of age. And here was a man who said to them, as they were preparing to take their lives with this cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, I'm going to meet you on the other side. We're going to go together to the other side. And Jim Jones was found with a bullet to his head. He had taken, apparently, taken his own life, rather than by the cyanide, had taken his own life with a gun. He said, I am the Messiah. Can I just tell you that when anyone says they are the Messiah or that they are God or that they are the Savior or that they have some special way to God that nobody else has ever known before, what ought to be going off in all of our minds is a fraud alert. There ought to be red flags going up. There ought to be bells and whistles sounding. There ought to be something going on within every one of us that acknowledges something is wrong here. This isn't the truth. You could take David Koresh in Waco, Texas. and You could take the Branch Davidians that followed him and who lost their lives in that blazing fire. Or you can go back through history and you can find numerous people who have claimed to be the Messiah, who have claimed to be the way to God. Over and over, you will find it again and again. And isn't it Jesus who said it is Jesus who said in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, 
I am the Christ and will deceive many. And there are many people today that are in a Christless eternal hell because the fraud alert system didn't go off when they heard somebody claiming that they were God or they were the Messiah or they had some special way of salvation. Jim Jones and all of the others that are like him are frauds. They're frauds. We know that because of what the Bible tells us. Jesus says that there is no other way to heaven except by him. And Peter, in preaching on this particular day to this august body of religious leaders who have gathered there before him to try Peter and John, hear this incredible statement about Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior and that there is no other name by which we must be saved. And I say to you today that all others other than Jesus Christ, all others are frauds. I want you to think with me for a few minutes about this verse of Scripture, chapter 4, verse 12. And first of all, we want to talk about mankind's extensive corruption. Mankind's extensive corruption. I want you to know, if you don't know, and I say it lovingly, I don't say it with any sense of glee, I simply want you to know that everybody that's listening to my voice today, and for that matter, everybody that comes into this world is a sinner. We may not be as bad as we could possibly be, but the fact of the matter is we are extensively corrupted by sin. Sometimes in theology they call this total depravity. If you mean by total depravity, total inability, we don't agree with one another. But if you mean by total depravity that we are extensively, every aspect of our lives has been touched by sin and affected by sin, then absolutely we agree with one another. Every one of us is a sinner. It's the reason why twice in this verse he says you need to be saved. He talks about salvation, and at the end of the verse he says we must. Circle that word. We must be saved. We must be saved. Why must we be saved? Because the reality is we need a rescuer. We need someone who can come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves or any other human being can do for us. We need someone who loves us and cares for us and who can deliver us out from under the penalty that we rightfully deserve as a result of our sinfulness. I'm not suggesting that you're as bad as you could possibly be. I'm simply telling you that every aspect of your life has been touched in some fashion by the sinfulness that's been handed down to you. It comes through our mother and fathers. It comes from their mothers and fathers all the way back to Adam in the garden. We are born with a sin nature, and the result is that sin nature leads us into sin, and every one of us are corrupt, are corrupted by sin as a result. I want you to keep your place here in Acts chapter 4, but look over just a few pages to Romans chapter 3. In the opening chapters of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul speaks about this very matter, that all of us are in fact sinners, and he proves it by quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. We'll begin in verse 10. And I want you to see, first of all, that he says our actions are corrupted. Our actions are corrupted. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, to be righteous. I don't do right. I don't always do right. There is none righteous. Why? Because our actions are corrupted by sin. 
You'll notice in verse 11 that our minds are corrupted by sin. There is none who understands. Nobody on his own is fully able to comprehend all that God has done for him. And then you'll notice that even our wills are corrupted at the end of verse 11. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then he begins taking members of our bodies, and he begins demonstrating how that every aspect of our lives has been corrupted in some fashion by sin. He says, their throat is an open tomb, and their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And he takes five aspects, the mouth, the lips, the tongues, the throat, excuse me, four aspects, the, tr- the throat, the tongues, the lips, the mouth, all of which are used for the purpose of making words all of which are used for the purpose of being able to speak pe- to, to people. And he says they're corrupted. They're corrupted. Whether it's our actions or our minds or our wills or our bodies, they're corrupted. He continues in verse 15. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Our feet take us where we're going, and they take us to places we shouldn't go. They involve us in things where we shouldn't be involved. They cause us to do or take us where we are caused to do things we shouldn't do. Our feet are corrupted. Verse 16, destruction and misery in their way, in the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so our mouths, our feet, our eyes, every aspect, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, every aspect of our lives is corrupted, extensively corrupted by sin. Please, I understand. I get it. We talk a lot today about self-respect and self-love and self-worth, and there's a place for that kind of discussion. But if that's all you talk about and you don't talk about mankind's fundamental problem, then you have failed to diagnose the real issue and you cannot help him if he, doesn't not, if he does not or she does not understand that he or she is a sinner before God. At our very best, we are sinners. I want to illustrate this to you in sort of a fun way, if I can do that for a moment. The the most innocent amongst us are our children, right? Those little toddlers that we have in our homes or have had in our homes, maybe they're our grandchildren now, that we, we have in our homes. Have you ever heard of the property laws of a toddler? You've not heard of the property laws of a toddler? That little innocent one in, sitting in the floor of your house is an illustration of how we are extensively corrupted by sin. Even those little innocent ones, extensively corrupted by sin. Just, just listen to the property laws of a toddler. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And I think the funniest one, if it's broken, it's yours. You didn't have to teach your toddler that. You didn't have to show him the way in that. 
It came naturally. You have to discipline that. You have to train them differently than that. But the reality is left to themselves, they demonstrate what the reality is for all of us. We are all corrupted extensively by sin. We are all totally depraved, meaning that every part of our being, every aspect of our being is corrupted by sin. We're all broken people, and it's the reason that we need a Savior. I want you to think for a moment about being in the middle of the Ohio River, and you're swimming in the middle of the Ohio River, and the waters are swiftly moving down the river, and suddenly you find yourself caught in the undertow. And it pulls you down underneath the surface of the water and you can't get your breath and you're just about to die, you think, and you're struggling as hard as you can to, to move yourself back to the surface so you can get another breath. And about the time you get to the surface and you breathe in this incredible breath, suddenly the toe, the undertow takes you back under. And you're getting tired as you go down the river. You're moving. You know how quickly you're moving down the river. You can see that you're nowhere near where you were when this all started. You're being, you're being pulled under by the undertow of this river. Yes, occasionally you get back to the surface. And yes, occasionally you're able to get a breath so that you can continue to struggle. But the harder you struggle, the more tired you become. And if somebody doesn't come to save you, you're going to die from drowning in that river. Matter of fact, I will tell you that there's been a lot of people who've drowned in the Ohio River. A lot of people who've drowned in the Ohio River. And there you are struggling to be able to get back to the surface just to get a breath when somebody pulls alongside you in a boat with an outstretched arm and you see it and you reach out and you take that hand and they pull you into the safety of that boat. Can I tell you that's what's true for every one of us we're caught in the undertow of sin. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but it means that periodically we are pulled under the surface and we're dying in our sins. We're dying in our sins. We may occasionally swim to the surface and get a breath of, of good works and good things that we can do, but then it pulls you right back under. And if somebody doesn't come and save you out of your sin, save you out of that water, you're going to drown. Because... You and I are sinners. P please don't misunderstand, but I'm going to give you what the Bible says about every one of us. The Scripture says that mankind is deceitful, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, full of evil, Mark chapter 7, 21 to 23, loves darkness rather than light, John 3, 19, cannot come to God on his own, John 6, 44, is helpless and ungodly, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, is a slave of sin, Romans 6, 20, cannot receive spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, is dead in his trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, is by nature a child of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3, and is at enmity with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Not a pretty picture. But that is what I am. That is what you are. That is what the most innocent amongst us are at their very nature. That's why when he finishes over a little later in Romans chapter 3, he says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. And unless somebody comes and helps you, you are in desperate circumstances. You will be pulled under by the undertow of sin and you will be drowned to death and separated from God forever because you and I are 
sinners. I know a lot of people have trouble with that kind of thinking. Well, I'm not really as bad as some, uh, some, some other person I know is bad. Let, let me illustrate that it only takes one sin to, be, to separate you from God. Ray Pritchard is a, an evangelist. I've heard him a, a number of times. He's an excellent preacher. But he writes this. Many people have trouble with the concept of mankind's total depravity. While not denying they are sinners, many people feel that their sin isn't bad enough to condemn them. What they don't understand is that any sin is wholly unacceptable to God. Let's suppose, he says, I invite you over to my house this Saturday morning for omelets. The day comes, you knock at my door, I let you in and go to the kitchen to prepare the meal. There on my counter are several mounds of chopped onions, green peppers, ham and sliced mushrooms. Nearby is a bowl of grated, uh, grated cheese. And while you're waiting in the dining room, I reach into the refrigerator for the eggs. To my shock, I discover that I have only six eggs. That's okay, except that one of the eggs is rotten. There isn't time to go get fresh eggs. So I say to myself, I'll just mix this rotten one in with the good ones and they'll never know the difference. In a few minutes, when I serve the omelets, you begin sniffing the air. What's that funny smell? Oh, don't worry about that. One of the eggs was rotten, but I just mixed it in with the rest. And then he asked the question, would you accept that omelet? And obviously the answer is no, you wouldn't. And neither will God. You may have a life that's filled with a lot of good things and a lot of good works, but that one egg, that one rotten sin in your life disqualifies you from being or getting or having entrance into heaven. That one sin makes you a sinner. And the fact of the matter is we are much worse than we imagine ourselves to be. Someone has asked, someone has said, I should say, if I wrote down every thought I have ever thought and every deed I have ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. What would they call you if they knew your every thought and they knew your every deed? The fact of the matter is mankind is extensively corrupted by sin. Some of us can put on a good front. Some of us can live a pretty good life. But the reality at the core of our being is like being in the Ohio River, being pulled under by the undertow. It's going to drown us. It's going to damn us. Unless somebody comes along to save us. That brings me to say, secondly, let's talk about God's exclusive provision. Mankind's extensive corruption. God's exclusive provision. Peter, in this particular verse of Scripture, is obviously no advocate of the modern notions of religious pluralism or of postmodernism. Now, we love living in a pluralistic society until we bring that into the church and into the religious realm. In a postmodern society, this is what you hear all the time. Well, you have your truth and I have my truth. We don't have to agree with one another. Both of our truths can be true. Now, if those are opinions, that's right. You can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, and those opinions can differ. But when it comes to the word truth, there aren't multiple, there aren't multiple truths. I mean, there's one truth. 
Two plus two doesn't equal five, and it doesn't equal three. Two plus two equals four. If it doesn't equal four, then we've got a real mess when we're teaching our children math, right? We've got a real mess. I mean, truth is truth. And the truth is that salvation is only in the person of Jesus Christ, the only one who can rescue you from the undertow of sin that's going to damn your soul is Jesus Christ. That's why he dove into the waters. He came to live amongst us. The sinless son of God was so that he could save us from our sins. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to think that way. They, they want to bring the pluralism and the postmodernism right into the church. A lot of the younger generation you know, thinks we just should accept everything and everybody. Every truth is equal. That kind of thinking damns people to an eternal hell because you fail to tell them the gospel of Christ. I uh, was a boy growing up, went to the Atlanta airport on a number of occasions. That's back before all the restrictions. We, on occasion, not very often, but on occasion, we go to the airport just for the purpose of watching the planes take off and land. It is a fascinating thing, isn't it? It is a fascinating thing. And so that was one of the things we would occasionally do. We'd eat there at the airport. We'd watch planes take off and land. You know, if you go to the Atlanta International Airport, if you look up at that, that board where they have outgoing flights and they have incoming flights, you will notice that on the outgoing flights, there are several different airlines that fly to New York City. You don't have to fly one particular airline. There's several different ones that will fly you to New York City. And a lot of people see that, and you know, this, a lot of different planes can take me where I want to go. And they transfer that postmodern kind of thinking, that pluralistic kind of thinking into the church. And they say, well, if there's a lot of planes that will take me to New York, then there's got to be a lot of ways to get to heaven. The problem is we're not going to New York. We're going to heaven, and God is the one who prescribes the way that a person gets to heaven. This is not a multiple choice question. There's only one choice that you can make and get to heaven, and that choice is Jesus Christ. He is God's exclusive provision. He says in this text, verse 12, there is no other name. Every other name's a fraud. Every other name's a fraud. If somebody says that salvation is in the church, you've got to belong to this church, you've got to take You've you got to take a mass at this church. You've got to confess to the priest. You've got to pray to the saints in this church. Salvation is in this church, and you leave this church. You lose that salvation. They're fraud. It's a fraud. Salvation isn't in a church. Salvation isn't in David Koresh, and it's not in Jim Jones or any of the others that have claimed to be the Messiah. Salvation is in Jesus. There is no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. I don't go to the grocery store very often. I don't go to any store very often. Matter of fact, if you see me in a store, you probably want to come up to me and ask me, are you okay, Pastor? Are you, are you okay? Do we need to call the you know, 911 and get them to come check you out? But on occasion, I, I go to the grocery store, and not very often, one of the fa- most fascinating aisles to me is the breakfast cereal aisle. You go down the breakfast cereal aisle, and there are literally dozens and dozens of different cereals that you can purchase. Matter of fact, I Googled it this past week. How many different breakfast cereals are there? And one website said there were 75. Gave pictures of at least 75 different breakfast cereals. I don't know if there's 75 on the shelves of our grocery stores or not, 
But a lot of people have the, the, the thinking that, well, you know, if you eat this breakfast cereal, it's going to be sort of nourishing to you, and it'll be okay to, 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 to pick any one of those cereals that you want to choose because you're going to get some nourishment from it. And so they transfer that over into the church. They transfer that, transfer that over into religious thinking. And they think that in the supermarket of religions that there ought to be lots of beliefs and lots of dogmas that ultimately can nourish us and ultimately are true. But according to the Bible, that's not true. It's not like shopping for cereal at the grocery store. I want you to go back to the text. I want you to notice in verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other. That's pretty exclusive. There's always somebody that says, well, surely what Peter was talking about was in that limited context of the Jewish nation itself. Those Middle Easterners, that's, that's who he had to be talking about. Only people in that context had a Savior by the name of Jesus Christ. That's not what he says. Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Did you know it? There's no, did you see it? There's no other name under heaven. Under heaven. Not just under the Israeli heaven. Not just under the Middle Eastern heaven. There's no other name under heaven. That means everywhere. Whatever is under the heavens above. Wherever that is. That's any place on the earth. Do you see that? There is no other name under heaven, not just uh, no other name in Israel and no other name under heaven uh, in the Middle East. There's no other name under heaven. And then you notice he says there's no other name. There's no other name, not just for the Jews, not just for the Middle Easterners, but among, but among all mankind. There's no other name. Why is our church involved in missions? Why, why do we emphasize taking the gospel around the world. Why should every church, every church be emphasizing taking the gospel around the world? Because unless you believe in Jesus, you die and you go to hell. You're separated from God forever. I know a lot of people think that's really narrow-minded. As a matter of fact, I get a lot more pushback at this point in my ministry that I have at any other point for preaching what I'm preaching to you today. But nobody thinks that it's narrow-minded when it comes to an illustration like this. Suppose for a moment that you had to traverse through a minefield. If you step on one of those mines, it's going to kill you. It's going to blow off your legs and take your life. And somebody has made a pathway through that minefield. All you got to do is stay on that pathway. If you step off that pathway, you're going to die. But as long as you stay on that pathway, it'll lead you to safety on the other side. Nobody thinks that that's being narrow-minded to stay on that pathway. As a matter of fact, they consider a person who walks on that pathway to be a pretty savvy survivor. Well, Jesus is the right pathway. As a matter of fact, I would tell you he's the only pathway that leads to heaven. Mankind's extensive corruption, God's exclusive provision is Jesus. It's not David Koresh. It's not Jim Jones. It's not David Lemming. It's not some church denomination. It's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. That brings me to say thirdly and finally, let's talk about your essential decision. Mankind's extensive corruption, God's exclusive provision, your essential decision. 
You know, that word essential has become really popular over the last two, two years, hasn't it? Essential what? Workers. I mean, you're essential. we got to have you. Well, there is an essential decision if you wish to be rescued from the undertow of the river of sin that's pulling you under and going to damn you to hell. And that decision is for you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look back to chapter 4, verse 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Just a few verses before we, where we were reading in verse 12. Peter was preaching the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Hey, listen, that is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and he lives today, and he saves all that comes to him. That's good news. That's great news. He preaches the gospel to them. Notice verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word, what's the next thing? Now, he, he didn't front load it. He didn't say, you got to do this, this, and this, and then believe. He didn't back load it. You got to believe and then do this, this, and this. He said what you've got to do is you've got to believe the gospel. You've got to believe that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again, and lives today, and that in him is eternal life. And when you believe that, you're born again. You become a child of the living God. And no matter what your church background may be, and no matter what your denomination is, you're not going to get into heaven through your church. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist church, Wesleyism, uh, Methodism. I wish the Methodists would come back to the beliefs of John Wesley. He formed the methods to help people come to maturity, discipleship in their faith. John Wesley says he had a dream one night in which he appeared at the gates of hell. And as he stood there, he cried out, Are there any Presbyterians in there? And the answer came back, Yes, a great many. Any Church of England members? Remember, he's an Englishman. Any Church of English members? Yes, lots of them. Any Baptist? A large number. And are there any Wesleyans or Methodists? Again, the answer, yes, many of them in hell. Wesley said he was disappointed as he thought about this dream later on, but then the dream took him to the gates of heaven. And at the gates of heaven, he repeated the exact same questions. Are there any Presbyterians, Church of England, Baptists, so forth? Are there any of those that are in, that are, that are in uh, heaven? Are there any of those that are in heaven? And the answer came back again, no, not one. No Baptists, no Church of England members, no Presbyterians, and no Wesleyans in heaven. None. So Wesley said, he exclaimed, who then is in heaven? And the reply came back, we know nothing here about the names you mentioned. The only name that matters here is Christ. We are all believers in Christ here. We are all Christians. You don't get into heaven because of your church background or because your grandparents were deeply religious people or because you sit in a Baptist church and listen to a Baptist preacher preaching every, every Sunday. You don't get into heaven for that reason. You get into heaven because you have personally, individually believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the free gift of eternal life. And that's your essential decision. I can't make that decision for you. If I could, I'd make it for you. But that was a decision I had to make when I was 16 years of age myself. I grew up in the Methodist church. But it wasn't until I was 16 years of age at Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Stockbridge, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta, 
that the gospel came home to me and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and at that moment I became a child of the living God. I did everything the Methodist told me to do. I went through the confirmation class. I went through the sprinkling baptism class. I did all of those things. I was in Sunday school every week. When it comes to heaven, the only people in heaven are Christians, not your denomination. It's whether you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or not. You must know Jesus to get into heaven. In 2006, there was a Chicago marathon. One of the runners was Roger Weber. And he said that as he began running this marathon, this 26.2-mile marathon, that he noticed laying on the ground that there was a runner's chip that was laying there. That chip was something they would put on their shoe. And as they would run, it would track them. They would come to different stations, and they would track these runners as they would go along, how quickly they were moving, where they were on the course, and most importantly, what time they started and what time they finished. But he saw this chip. It wasn't attached to any shoe or to any racer. It was just laying there, which meant that that, there was a runner on on the track. There was a runner in the race who didn't count. Didn't matter if he was able to run a record time or not. It didn't matter if he finished before everybody else finished or not. According to the rules, the runner didn't run the race because that chip wasn't still on his shoe. That chip wasn't on the shoe. The people that organized the race set the rules. And no matter how well someone runs, if the officials say the runner doesn't qualify, he or she doesn't qualify. And it's in a sense, in that sense that it's true for us. We can run what appears to be a good race in life by, good, by doing good things and obeying the rules. But when we arrive at the final checkpoint, the gates of heaven, and you don't have the chip, you don't have Jesus, you haven't received Christ as your Savior, you'll be disqualified and you'll not be allowed entrance into that place. Now look, the Bible says that over and over again. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I I don't know how to say it any any plainer. Just quote the words of Jesus. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the chip. You're not even in the race. And when you stand at the gates of heaven, you're disqualified because Jesus isn't in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? I've come to tell you today that mankind's extensive corruption touches every one of us and that God's exclusive provision is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that your essential decision is to trust in Christ to be your Savior. Those of you that are watching me, to trust in Christ to be your Savior. If Jesus isn't in your life, you'll not be given entrance into heaven. If Jesus doesn't come and rescue you out of the undertow of that river of sin that's pulling you under and going to damn your, your, your soul. If Jesus doesn't come and you trust Jesus and take him by faith, you're going to be separated from God forever, forever. Now please hear me. 
in just a few minutes, I'm going to give an invitation. And those of you that are sitting here listening to me that you have never trusted in Jesus, I'm going to come down to the front, and I'm going to stand down here, and I'm going to ask you to come and stand. Not kneel, just come and stand. You don't have to get more than six feet close to me. Just come and stand with me and say, today, I want to ask Christ to be my Savior. I'm going to ask you to come and stand with me. But before I do that, I've got two other things I want to say. Two other things I want you to hear. And they have to do with the application of what I'm talking about. First of all, for all of us, those of us who know that this is the truth, this is the word of the living God. This isn't Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Catholic. This is the Bible. This is what it says. This is how we get to heaven. It's in Jesus and in Jesus alone. First of all, that being the case, we must be people of conviction. I don't, I don't care what other, every other church is doing. Let's soften the message. Let's change it. Let's, let's be a little more postmodern. You know, let's, let's every, let everybody have their own truth. We'll have ours, and they can have theirs, and all these roads are going to ultimately lead, lead to heaven. Every, every flight will ultimately get you there. Yeah, but you don't get entrance unless you have Jesus in your life. I read an article this past week. I'll read a portion of it to you. The American Worldwide Inventory of 2020 survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christian, that's 52%, accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. It goes on. The study also found that huge proportions of people associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. That's right. However, they believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. Lynn Munsell, who's the president of Arizona Christian University, said this. It's a wake-up call for the church and for leaders in all areas of influence to speak teach and work to restore biblical truth. He continues, many souls will be lost if people are, are misled by the false notion that we can earn our way to heaven rather than recognizing the truth that Christ alone and his righteousness are the basis for our salvation. Are you with me? I have to tell you one more story. We must be people of conviction. Those of you that are already believers, you don't compromise this truth. You don't soft soap this truth. You don't try to accommodate society for this truth. Christ will be a stumbling block to some, but there are many that Christ will be the Savior because they will trust in him. In the frontier days of our country, there was a great preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. If you've done any reading about church history, you've read about this great preacher. He was the Methodist circuit-riding preacher that spoke the truth of God with conviction. That's what I'm talking about, speaking the truth of God with conviction. On one occasion, he was getting ready to preach, and somebody came to him, and they said, President Andrew Jackson is going to be in the congregation this morning. And then they urged him to be very restrained in his remarks. I mean, the president is going to be here. So when Peter Cartwright got up, he said, they tell me that President Andrew Jackson is in my congregation this morning. They have recommended that I be somewhat restrained in my remarks. He stopped 
and looked at the president where he was sitting in the congregation and said, Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent and give his life to Jesus Christ. He went on and finished out his sermon. He said that at the end of the message, the president, President Jackson, came to him, shook his hand and said, if I had a thousand men like you, I could conquer the world. I would tell you that if we had a thousand members of Lewis Memorial Baptist Church who believe that salvation is through Christ and through Christ alone, we could win this city to Jesus. And secondly, not only must we be people of conviction, we must be people of courage. Because when you preach this kind of a message, can I just tell you, you're going to be attacked. As a matter of fact, it's preaching this kind of message that brought most people to martyrdom for their faith, this kind of a message. I mean, if someone should try to force you to confess that Caesar is Lord or that Allah is the one true God and Muhammad his prophet, the Christian has to answer, I will not and I cannot. And that takes courage because it may well cost you your job in this woke culture, this cancel culture. It may well cost you your job. It may well cost you a number of things in your life, your reputation. It may well cost you a lot of things. But if Jesus is Lord and Jesus alone, we have to be people of conviction and people of courage who stand on the truth of the Word of God. And we can't soft soap it. We can't say, well, we'll put that down here on the bottom shelf. Maybe nobody will notice where that is. That doesn't go on the bottom shelf. That goes on the top shelf. Because nothing else is in its rightful place until a person comes to faith in Jesus 